Hey, everybody. Welcome to Slide, the Avalanche podcast. I'm your host, Doug Krause, and this is episode one. Yeah, I'm still coming to you from Lima, Peru. I hope I'm not losing any credibility. I swear I'm going to make it up to the northern hemisphere pretty quick here. i got less than two weeks to go now, and I am champing at the bit to get back home for a little while to Silverton, Colorado. If you want to know more about me and about this podcast, I encourage you to listen to our introductory episode. It's just a little three or four minute blurb about what we got going on here. In a nutshell, I've been doing professional avalanche work since about 1999, all over the place, all over the world, as a patroller and a forecaster guide, educator, consultant, you name it. And I am pretty fascinated by the way our brains work with respect to making decisions in avalanche country. So Slide is all about making decisions in avalanche country. If that interests you, well, you came to the right place. I'm accustomed to lecturing for professional audiences, so apologize in advance if this content is a a little dense. I actually had a few people comment about this episode, how much meat there was on the bone, so I decided to chop it in half. The main content block on communication is going to be split into this episode and the next one. And as always, you know, I would love your feedback, so get on the Facebook page and uh, send me a message if there's something in particular you want to hear about. It occurs to me that number of folks may not be all that familiar with what exactly podcasting is. So I'm going to try and make it simple for you. If you got an iPhone, just open up iTunes, go to podcasts, and you'll find a search bar. If you search for Avalanche, you're going to probably find Slide, the Avalanche podcast. If you search for Slide and Avalanche, it'll take you right to it. And all you have to do is click on subscribe and you'll automatically get a notification every time a new episode is up. And you can even set it up so it'll automatically download it if you like. If you got an Android phone, as I do, I use an app called Pocket Casts. It's available on the Google Play Store. And same thing, you just get on there, you do a search for Slide and Avalanche. This will come up and you can go ahead and subscribe. And it'll automatically let you know and download it when a new episode is out. You can also listen to our stuff on SoundCloud. And I'll be posting links on the, on the Facebook page and all that good stuff. So in this podcast, we're going to take just a moment at the start to talk a little bit about the state of the pack across the world, a little preseason heads up tips, brief rant on rescue, a little bit of gear talk, and then uh, we'll go into our feature presentation on communication. As a closer, I got a segment I call Brain Traps, where every episode I look at a new and exciting way this marvel of evolution, the human brain, can actually conspire to destroy us in avalanche country. Humans have a lot of problems when it comes to thinking about stuff. Seriously. Well, understanding brain traps helps us see why, and it supports taking the dirt out of skiing powder. State of the pack. We got a pretty dry start this year in Colorado and Utah, where you have some faceted snow fields on the higher elevation northerlies and not much more, really. But I hear the skating is lovely. Some solid storm cycles in the northern Rockies so far this season. Nothing to get too excited about, but things are progressing, starting to shape up a little bit. The Gallatin and Bridger Teton Avalanche Centers are both up and running with more information if you are so inclined. 
The Pacific Northwest, I hear, is having a grim start, but may be set for a pattern change. Mammoth is open, and Squaw Valley is terrified for the future of their community. That's about all I know about that. We got snow up high in AK and rain down low. Welcome to Alaska. I have no idea what is going on in Canada, but I'm sure they're sorry about it. And Europe is off to a strong start with a number of skiers planning on opening early this year. Not much happening yet in Japan, pretty normal for them. You can find links to all the American Avalanche centers at avalanche.org and Avalanche Canada information is at avalanche.ca. I cajoled Brian Lazar from the Colorado Avalanche Information Center to give us a quickie refresher on early season avalanche concerns. So take it away, Brian. Early season snow is always a double-edged sword. It's of course good to see the snow return after a long hot summer and it's easy to get excited getting the skis waxed and the snowmobile dewinterized and ready to charge. But the thin early season cover also presents some unique hazards. It's always good to remember the old adage, if there's enough snow to ride, there's enough snow to slide. The first blanket of snow, of course, falls on previously bare ground. The initial snowfall usually doesn't present much of an avalanche hazard, but it does cover obstacles like rocks, stumps, and drowned trees. People venturing into the backcountry to get a taste of the first couple snowfalls run a real risk of hitting these obstacles and damaging their gear or themselves. Of course, the first snow of the season often sets the stage for the avalanche hazard to come. Early season avalanches come in a few flavors, but regardless of the kind of avalanche, taking a ride in the early season is almost always an ugly proposition, dragging would-be victims across the ground through rock stumps and other obstacles. If the early season snow is not buried quickly and deeply by subsequent snowfall, it can facet away and turn into a layer of loose cohesionless large grain snow. This can produce small facet sloughs, a particular kind of loose dry avalanche. While these avalanches are generally small and usually don't entrain enough to breed a bury a person, the ride alone can be deadly. People have been killed in avalanches in every month of the year and fatal avalanche accidents and small early season slides are a common occurrence. Things get more hazardous if this weak snow gets buried by a slab of stiffer snow. This commonly occurs when a storm rolls in and the snow, storm snow either settles in place into a soft storm slab or is drifted into thicker stiffer slabs from wind transport. Now we have the potential to trigger larger and more destructive avalanches. If these slabs sit over this weak snow for a bit more time, we enter the realm of the less predictable and more dangerous persistent slab avalanches. These types of avalanches can break in surprising ways and be triggered from below or even from a distance. It's best to give this setup a wide berth to account for the uncertainty. And again, any avalanche that drags you across the ground can really ruin your day or worse. Do not let the early season antsiness end your season prematurely. I don't always ride early season snow, but when I do, there is adequate coverage. Stay patient, my friends. Thanks, Brian. Sage words from the number two guru at the CIC. If I can give a bit of a recap there, heads up for trauma. There's all kinds of rocks and stumps and nonsense that will tear you up if you are caught in an early season avalanche. The potential for a slab on facets that developed early season is perhaps also elevated. Terrain traps and convexities that are normally buried mid-season can be more prominent during the early season. And there's all sorts of other stuff going on too, like you're out of practice or you got new gear or you're skiing with different people than you normally do. There may be limited observations. You don't have a season's worth of information packed away in your brain. You may be more goal-driven. You may be dying to get out there and make some turns. And there may be limited options as well. So as Brian says, be patient. 
So I got a little micro rant for you and it goes a little something like this. How do you get ready for backcountry ski season? Look for your stuff and buy some batteries? Well, here's two suggestions. Avalanche Rescue is algorithmic. What I mean by that is you can break it down into a series of simple steps that constitute your plan. Planning will help you manage the stress and uncertainty associated with an avalanche accident. You have an avalanche beacon, right? You're getting good with it? Better than okay or not bad? Beacon search skills are easily mastered. Wait for it. There is no excuse for not having a basic standing rescue plan and practicing to a mastery level with your beacon. No excuse. Lack of preparation is denying the potential for harm, and weak beacon skills are spit in the face of your partners. So, how are we doing on that? Everybody have a basic standing rescue plan? If something goes wrong, we're not going to wing it, right? Two beacons, one meter down, close proximity, less than five minutes. Got that? Sweet. No problem? Excellent. Beacon search is the easy part. Digging. It's the hard part. Ever practice digging? Tell you what, let me go bury a bag of chili cheese Cheetos and maybe that'll incentivize the learning process. I've got a super basic framework for avalanche rescue that will fit most any circumstance. Alert, assess, plan, execute, and finish. Alert, make sure everybody knows what's happening. Assess, don't just do something, stand there. Gauge the scene safety, determine the scope of your problem and the available resources. Plan on an immediate here and now level. Use a moment to figure out who's doing what and how that's gonna go. How are you gonna minimize exposure? How are you gonna communicate? Is there anything you're not going to do? Execute. This is your search and recovery. Build a pause for reassessment into your execution process. And finish. After you dig them up, what are you gonna do now? You done? Doubt it. EMS and extrication. Do you have any medical training? How are you going to evacuate a broken leg? Alert, assess, plan, execute, and finish. I'm not saying you got to use this one, but a simple planning framework can help guide your thoughts and actions under extreme duress. I put some more resources for you all in the show notes on our Facebook page. Manuel Genswine has done extensive research into avalanche rescue methodology, and he wrote an article called Tips and Tricks for the Last Few Meters of a Beacon Search. So I linked that from the Avalanche Review Archive. And if you don't practice multiple burial scenarios on a regular basis, the odds of successfully executing one are slim indeed. So the three circle method is a super easy one to learn and will give you a leg up if you're faced with multiple beacon signals in close proximity. And there's an article on that and a video tutorial linked in the show notes. Christmas is coming, you know. Christmas, and you may have some credit cards burning a hole in your pocket. So, a couple heads up, Arcteryx has a new battery-powered fan sack out. It's called the Volt Air, not to be confused with Voltron, Defender of the Universe. And it costs about as much as a small plane, or approximately 85 30 packs of PBR. I did the math. Looks like a pretty decent pack. I linked Lou Dawson's review of it and also added an article by ex-Utah Avalanche Center director Bruce Tremper on the effectiveness of airbags. It's an older article, but still very relevant. If you want to hear more about airbag stuff, let me know. Sometimes I use one and sometimes I don't. 
Micro rant number two coming up. One of the only tools besides your brain that is actually capable of preventing avalanche accidents is a two-way radio. Radios facilitate communication, which is a critical safety capability. Do yourself a favor and get some radios for you and your partner this winter. They only work if you use them, so don't stuff them in your pockets. Make them easy to use. Get a radio harness or boom mic that can live on your pack strap. You can find a link to Lou Dawson's review of the BCA radio system in the show notes. And now on to our main event, communication. Without effective communication, you might as well be alone. In avalanche country, we ski with a partner, not just so homie can attempt a rescue if something goes wrong, but because additional input enhances our judgment and decision-making process. With a group or a partner, we can ask questions and share opinions. We collaborate on planning and pool observations. A partner can provide feedback and enhance situational awareness. Multiple brains and sets of eyes improve our ability to reassess and capture errors. In a best-case scenario, a group is more than the sum of its parts. It becomes a team. But none of that is possible without effective communication. Effective communication has the potential to mitigate every single human factor we encounter in avalanche country. How many of us work to improve our communication skills? Do you? In those bygone epochs that geologists refer to as the 1970s and 80s, several organizations with imposing acronyms like the DOD, NTSB, FAA, and NASA refined a concept called crew resource management. CRM is a training regimen that specifically addresses scenarios where human error can have disastrous consequences. It grew from the realization that air disasters were frequently the result of human error, often in the form of a communication breakdown. The airline industry was one of the first to embrace every failure as an opportunity for improvement. As a result, flying on a commercial airline is statistically safer than walking. Sadly, no one's yet been injured by a crappy seat. CRM training principles were mandated by the FAA, adopted by all the branches of the military, and they're penetrating the fire services and healthcare. It is mighty handy that we can draw on this massive body of research and practice to help us communicate better in avalanche terrain, where human error can also have tragic consequences. Communication is a skill. You can study it, practice it, and strive for mastery. Not all of us will achieve the lofty oratory of a Cicero or a Churchill or even the compelling locution of Vince McMahon or Mr. T, but that's not what it's about. We're using communication as a tool. It has to be functional, not pretty. We need to cut to the chase, but remain aware that a knife can do harm or good or just idly spread some mayo around. Communication can be an asset, a burden, or nothing more than noise. It depends on how you use it. Breaking communication into responsibilities associated with speaking and listening gives us practice targets. We need to be proficient at delivering and receiving messages, effectively and efficiently. Reviewing the components of those tasks prepares us for practice. Let's talk about four speaking responsibilities. Enquiry and advocacy, 
observation, and clarification. Ask, tell, share, what? Four reasons for you to speak up. Inquiry is asking questions. In the presence of avalanche danger, confusion is not an acceptable state. Don't reckon you'll figure it out later or that that guy must know what he's doing because he sure talks smart. In an avalanche environment, every person is responsible for knowing what is going on. So ask the question. Not asking questions may lead to assumptions of understanding. You didn't say nothing, so I figured you knew what was going on. I got a couple friends, we'll call them Nigel and Chester. And Nigel's teaching Chester, the rookie, how to do avalanche control work. So they're on top of the mountain, they build a bunch of explosives and stuff them in a backpack, and they go for about a 20 or 30 minute hike up this ridge line. Chester's never done anything like this before. Sure, he's skied, but you know, carrying a heavy pack, and the wind's blowing, it's snowing, they're walking along a cliff, and all of a sudden they come to this couloir, steep couloir, steep, narrow couloir, and that's where they're going with explosives. So Nigel, being the, the conscientious educator that he is, gives Chester a little talking to about the importance of communication and how he should be sure to ask questions if he has any. And how do you think Chester's feeling right now? He's, I wouldn't say he's terrified. You know, he's a young, strong guy, but uh, he's alert. <laughs> That's for sure. Apprehensive, definitely. Probably a little stressed. All his senses are firing. You know, I can see his face in my mind. His eyes are open so wide you can hear his optic nerve humming in the wind. Think about how easy it is to clam up in a situation like that and just assume you'll be told what to do. Just, just stand there and try not to screw up. Well, Chester asks a question. He says, is this a safe place to stand? That is an excellent question, Chester. And God bless you for asking it. We don't want to use inquiry as a crutch to support an unwillingness to actually think. Try to keep questions relevant and well-timed, but always err on the side of asking. Questions increase our knowledge base, they enhance our understanding, and they improve our situational awareness. Ask the question. Advocacy means you got to work on developing an opinion, and you got to share it. It is not cool to just sit back and let somebody else do the heavy lifting of critical assessment. There's a word for people that passively let others decide everything and never chime in with a point of view. Victim. You owe it to your partners and yourself to examine situations critically. Develop an opinion and share it. Not voicing an opinion may be taken as agreement. You didn't say anything. I thought you was down with cow tipping. I tour with some fellows that would not be considered exceptional communicators, but when they speak up, man, they are on point. So one day we're going for a tour after a big storm, massive storm. We got like a hundred inches in three or four days, something ridiculous like that. And I'm dying to go skiing. I'm champing at the bit. You know, I've been watching it pound snow all week and Finally, we're getting outside. So we come up with a pretty conservative plan to head out of town a little ways and you know go for a, a mellow tour in the trees. We're cruising in on the approach and we're getting some local collapsing here and there. No big surprises. And then, man, we trigger this big old rolling collapse. It sounds like distant thunder echoing around a basin. And then we hear it 
receding off into the distance. It must have lasted for, God, it felt like forever. It was probably only three, four, maybe even five seconds. Well, (laughs) I still want to go skiing. By God, I want to ski some powder. But my buddy Cedric says, I'm going home. You guys can continue, but I'm not comfortable and I'm not having fun. So we all left. It's not every day you can count on the snowpack bellowing danger. Opinions provide feedback that is often missing from avalanche environments. Opinions add context to decisions and action. They can highlight insightful or faulty judgment. Sharing opinions is one of the things that makes a team more resilient and adaptive. Sharing opinions makes your beliefs vulnerable to skepticism. We need that. Certainty is the enemy of adaptation. Novices are particularly good at spotting anomalies and faulty logic, so don't think that just because you're new, you get a pass. Those with high levels of experience or expertise are vulnerable to biases that make it difficult for them to reassess a chosen course of action. If you're out with Johnny gets rad all the time, getting rad is part of his self-image. He does it all the time, and he'll have trouble accepting evidence that suggests less rad options because this is what he does. This is his thing. He knows what he's doing. That's probably a pretty obvious example. But the same is true if you're out with Walter, the telemarking meadow skipper. Being safe and making good conservative decisions are integral parts of his self-image. He may resist seeing evidence that indicates he made a poor decision, whereas a novice has less ego to protect. Sometimes ignorance is clarity. you got to share your questions and opinions. Otherwise, your silence speaks for you, and you have no idea what it's saying. Sharing observations is also a responsibility. Teams and partners can pool their observations to create a more complete picture of the environment. We all have a responsibility to share our observations, to verbalize them. If we supplement that with verbalizing our thought process, it allows us to check each other for logic and bias. Nobody sees everything, and different people will inevitably see things in different ways. Did you feel that wind shift? See that little pocket that pulled out over there underneath that rock band? Check out the way that point really stepped down to a slab. I'm cruising through the forest, cutting a skin track after a good dump. It's still, it's cold, it's gorgeous. Trees are blanketed in snow. There's about 18 inches new. Man, I am in my happy place. Trail breaking's going smoothly. I'm getting some local collapsing every few minutes. I file that away as the snowpack is still busy adjusting to the new load. No surprise. We top out on the ridge and my buddy Rupert's about a minute behind me. He shows up, starts taking off his pack and ripping his skins. And he says, wow, man, I didn't feel any collapsing the whole way up. Things have really settled out. Oh, I reply sheepishly. I was feeling it the whole way up. Sorry. I should have told you. No doubt that little piece of information has completely changed his stability assessment. We, as humans, are hardwired to pay closer attention to evidence that supports our beliefs and even discount evidence that contradicts them. So stupid brain has already set us up for making poor observations. Sharing your obs helps compensate for that. Clarification is a responsibility. You gotta make sure you're picking up what Jerry's laying down, man. 
not just groove into whatever track was already on your mind. You copy that? We are not objective listeners. And it's mighty common for folk to lack clarity in their speech. You could land a plane or park an oil tanker in the amount of space some people leave open for misinterpretation. Does she comment on the snow blowing in the wind because it's so pretty? Or because recent wind loading is a concern? When Nigel says he's not in his happy place, does that mean he is mildly uncomfortable? Or, oh my god, we need to get out of here. You feel pretty good about it? What does that mean? I feel pretty good about toast for breakfast. Can we talk about why you feel pretty good about it and what's keeping you from feeling better? Maybe address the level of uncertainty here? Frequently, speech requires clarification. I just spent five minutes slowly and carefully explaining where I want Murata to ski cut. His English is not so hot and my Japanese is way worse, so I'm being as simple and clear as I am capable of. Go down this chute, cut hard left, and cut all those little pockets under the rock bands. He's nodding throughout, you know, making eye contact, gives a final confirmation, and he skis off in the completely wrong direction. So I smack myself on the forehead, sigh deeply, and go do it myself. No doubt you won't have to look far in your own life to identify a time when miscommunication was a problem. One time on top of Cerro Fosijes, I was talking to my buddy Pedro about a line we could see out on the other side of Valle Hermoso. Beautiful little undulating couloir, except he was looking at a completely different line. He was looking at a completely different mountain. And it's a good thing we cleared that up because getting there and back was about a seven-hour tour. We can hear something wrong. We can misunderstand. We can make faulty inferences. Making a point of clearing things up is a responsibility. So, four things. Enquiry, advocacy, observation, and clarification. Those are questions, opinions, what you see and feel, and what you believe to be true. Ask, tell, share, what? These are our speaking responsibilities, the things we talk about. Next week, we're going to talk about how to do that more effectively and efficiently. listening, I can almost guarantee your mind has wandered off at some point in the last 10 minutes, maybe less. You can blame the velvet tones and funky groove if you want. My mind always wanders during podcasts because I always listen to them while I'm doing something else. Paying attention is hard unless you really focus on listening. Attention is a scarce resource. You have to treat listening as a task because active listening is something you do. And if you're doing something else at the same time, you're multitasking. You are, by definition, distracted. And both tasks are suffering for that. You can teach yourself to be attentive, to passively listen to what is going on around you. That's one of the ways you increase situational awareness. But be aware of the difference between passive and active listening. Active listening requires you to prioritize receiving the message. Effective listening requires you to respect that message and not cover it in your own biases and preconceived notions. We need to look at information objectively rather than applying filters to it. That's challenging, and it's not the way our brains naturally work. We see and hear everything through the filter of our belief systems. If you have an ultra-conservative partner, 
Maybe you don't pay very close attention when they point out signs of instability. But maybe this time there really is a wolf at the door. We're going to spend a lot of time on this podcast looking at the different ways our brains can trick us. I used to work with this guy that was always leaping to the rescue whenever a report of the slightest little injury came over the radio. Drove me nuts. Dun, dun, dun! I'll save you now! Dudley Do-Right. Anybody? Anyway, like I said, it irritated the heck out of me. Drove me nuts. So I would downplay the significance of a report when he was around because I I don't know why, but that's what I did. And then one day I ignored a report that he raced off to and it turned out to be a major trauma event. Made me feel pretty stupid. Made me feel pretty small. I let something get in the way of my listening. Confirm your understanding after someone speaks to you. This acknowledgement and clarification requirement is shared by speaker and listener because it's critical. There are just too many ways a message can be compromised between the speaker and the listener. If you can't hear your partner well, say so. If you don't understand, say so. Rephrase or repeat important information to confirm your understanding. I've done a lot of ski guiding, and you know what the most common thing to hear among a group after the guide skis away is? What do you say? <laughs> uh, nothing important. He was just explaining where we should go to not die. Maybe you should have asked him to speak up or clarify. Kind of seems like relevant beta. So for listening, we focus on three things. Actively paying attention, respecting the message, and confirming our understanding. Who does Dudley Do-Right represent? Didn't know there was going to be a test, did you? The roadblocks to effective listening include a truckload of biases and cognitive traps, We'll be ending every episode with a brief discussion of a particular heuristic or cognitive fallacy. They describe the way our brain works. They're survival and efficiency mechanisms, but they can also lead us astray. I call them brain traps. It's going to be a recurring theme on this show. I'm ending every show with a brain trap segment. But there's simpler, more obvious stuff too. Fatigue, apathy, disrespect, task overload, stress. Ever feel that? All these things will compromise your ability to manage information, to listen. There is a poo-poo platter of distractions out there conspiring against your understanding. Be vigilant and know that if roadblocks to communication are present, you're going to have to try harder. And they are always present. My friend Rupert used to get so fired up about people that didn't listen, he would beat his pole in the snow and his chin would jut out and he'd yell and speak. How can you not know that? She just said it two minutes ago. Well, not paying attention is easy. Listening well takes practice. Quick recap. Speaking responsibilities include inquiry and advocacy, observation and clarification. Ask, tell, share. What? Listening responsibilities include paying attention, respecting the message, and confirming your understanding. Clarification at the tail end of both speaking and listening. That's how you capture communication errors. Don't forget, people can also listen with their eyes and speak without their voice. Silence is not golden. Silence is bunk. Todd Gwynn is the mountain safety manager at 
CMH, Canadian Mountain Holidays, big heli-op up in Canada. They've got 125 ski guides, over 1,400 years of combined experience among their guides. And he recently gave all his guides a questionnaire and wrote a paper based on that that's called 10 Common Missteps of Avalanche Practitioners. There'll be a link to the paper on the Facebook page. I'm going to quote from it. The main misstep noted by the guides had to do with a lack of communication. It was the single biggest factor involving events of consequence. It could be on a larger scale amongst teams or person to person giving directions. It also came in many forms, including not being transparent, choosing the wrong communication style, not knowing your audience, incorrect tone, and not speaking up when doubt lingered. The message here is that even the pros struggle with communication. What hope do recreationalists have unless we prioritize communication skills and work to make them better? This week we talked about the what you say. Next week we're going to dig deeper into how you say it. We're going to go over some tactics for being a more effective speaker. Communication is complex. You probably don't remember everything I just covered and that was the short and sweet version. And that's why we need to practice. Because communication is at the core of the human factor. And it's the humans that are the main factor in avalanche accidents. Well, that was a head full, eh? We should probably listen to that again. Moving forward, this week's brain traps are motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. How can these scientifical terms screw up our ability to make wise decisions in avalanche country? If you're not already aware of this, your brain is not the logical and objective fount of reason you may think it to be. It's more like an enabler. Brain want you to make happy big fun. Big fun now. I'm quoting Yale professor Daniel Cahan. Motivated cognition refers to the unconscious tendency of individuals to fit their processing of information to conclusions that suit some end or goal. So he's telling me that if I want to ski steep gnarly powder, I'm going to look at information and make decisions in a way that leads me towards skiing steep gnarly powder. Well, that's handy. I can see how that sort of goal-oriented processing could be an advantage as long as my goals are clear. But Do we really go out every day with a primary goal of not getting caught in an avalanche? For most of us, I think the answer is probably no. I go skiing because I want to do something, not because I want to not do something. It's all too easy to lose track of our goals and priorities, and that's the space where the party people in your gray matter like to creep in and seize control. Ziva Kunda from Princeton University drew the distinction between motivation to be accurate a search for truth, so to speak, and the motivation to arrive at a particular conclusion. It's the first we must embrace and the second we must eschew. When I'm doing explosive avalanche mitigation work, I'm searching for truth. Truth with a puff of smoke and a big friggin' boom. If it's a ski area, there are going to be hundreds of random stability testers crawling all over that slope, so there's no room for delusion. But when I'm out for fun, it's a lot easier to be target-oriented, to be motivated to arrive at a particular conclusion. We're good, right? We can make this plan happen, right? That slope is slicker than a white ribbon at happy hour. Confirmation bias is one of the mechanisms Artisatter uses to support motivated reasoning. 
David McRaney, author of the You Are Not So Smart books and podcasts, defines confirmation bias as the propensity to seek information that confirms what you already believe and ignore data that contradicts your beliefs. So hopefully you can see how these two insidious forces combine to make it easier for us to do dumb stuff. Motivated reasoning conspires to make us think in a goal-oriented context as opposed to a consequences-oriented context. Confirmation bias makes that easy by favoring information that supports attaining our goal. And that's all the time we got. (laughs) Sorry to leave you hanging. Nah, actually, I'm not sorry. That's my hook. I wanted to talk more about communication brain traps, but that's going to have to wait. The early days of this podcast will likely be a litany of broken promises and shattered dreams as I get better at figuring out how to organize my research and content and do all the technical stuff too. The good news is that we're going to talk more about communication and brain traps next week. I'll review specific tactics for effective communication in avalanche country, and we'll dig a little deeper into the confirmation bias and chat about how we can try to exercise, not exercise, that from our thought process. I'll let you know if the skiing's getting good anywhere, and we may start easing into the next big topic, situational awareness. In the meantime, remember what I said about communication, the ask, tell, share, what, speaking responsibilities, ask the questions, tell your partners about your opinions, share your observations, and what, clarify, make sure you are actually on the same page. For listening, pay attention, respect the message, and again, acknowledge or clarify what you think you heard. While you're sweating out the next week or so mad with anticipation, think about this scenario. It's really early in the ski season. You're dying to grab some powder turns. Snow is 18 inches, just enough to hopefully put your early season stash in good shape. Will your desires potentially compromise your decision making? I'll give you a hint. Yes. Thanks, everybody. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or the Android app of your choice. You can also find us on SoundCloud. If you got questions or feedback, lay them on me, por favor. The music is by Kevin McLeod and Incompetech. This podcast receives emotional support from the Silverton Avalanche School and the Avalanche Review. And thanks to my board of smarty pants for letting me bounce ideas off y'all. Without feedback, we're all just spraying in the wind. Pray for snow. Thank you.